Hi there, and welcome back to Out There, a cryptid podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Each week, I will be coming out with a new episode focused on a cryptid that I find super fascinating and weird. And if you still don't know what a cryptid is, it is defined as an animal that has been claimed to exist, but never proven to exist. Cryptids don't have to be supernatural or mythical beings. Although many of them are, some cryptids have actually become documented animals. Make sure you go and follow the podcast on Instagram at Out There Cryptids and check out the posts I make for each episode and maybe send some suggestions you'd like to hear. So remember how we were doing that road trip thing? Well, I started to realize that a lot of the cryptids from the States were more urban legendy rather than cryptid-y. So we are abandoning ship on that. I have a lot of the cryptids I was going to do penned for other episodes. So fear not. Today's episode is what I planned for when we got to New Jersey, because this story was something I loved to read and listen to growing up. It was about a creature. We already know, but with a twist. I think you'll find it interesting either way. But starting next week, we will be getting to more cryptids with some crazier origins and meat on their bones, which is a horrible transition into this week's story. This week, we are talking about a case that inspired the iconic book and movie franchise, Jaws, the Matawan Maneater. There is no weird club inductee today, but starting next week, we will get back to inducting either new members or bring back some returnees. So, let's dive in. July 1st, 1916. The beautiful beach town of Beach Haven, New Jersey was, as usual, very busy. Tourists, residents, and beachgoers were enjoying the days leading up to July 4th. Beaches were full of excitement and relaxation, and a 25-year-old man named Charles E. Van Sant was enjoying it as well. He was a resident of Beach Haven and a Pennsylvania University graduate. He was in the water, swimming around like all of us do, when something pulled him under. Only a couple of people noticed Van Sant's frantic movements in the water. At first, they thought he was calling to the dog he had been swimming with. That is, until he started screaming and thrashing about when everyone on shore noticed. Lifeguards quickly swam out and dragged Van Sant onto the shore. And when they pulled him out, they saw how badly wounded he was. There was a trail of blood leading from the water to where they brought him ashore. And even though they tried to stop the bleeding, he had already lost too much and died on the beach. Van Sant was attacked by a shark. Little did they know, this was just the beginning. In the news clipping, apparently some people saw the shark's dorsal fin and estimated it to be around nine feet in length. This was heartbreaking to the town, but since it was the peak of the summer, this didn't really stop people from enjoying the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, think about it this way. We nowadays sometimes hear about shark attacks, and that usually doesn't stop us from going in the water. We all start by saying, just to my ankles, and then just to my knees, and until we are comfortable enough to start swimming in the deeper parts. So yes, people were freaked out, and probably more cautious, but it doesn't stop them from going. Only some let this fear keep them from the beach. To them, it was not only because a member of the community had been killed, but this meant that the beaches they loved so much were now being stalked by a murderer. Scientists from the area wrote this off as a singular freak occurrence. Some said that you are more likely to be attacked by bees than a shark. I mean, at this time, scientists believed that not only would sharks not attack humans, but they physically couldn't. But little did they know, they could not have been more wrong. 
July 6th, 1916. Spring Lake is about 50 miles north of Beach Haven. A hotel employee named Charles Berter is swimming in the ocean with some of his friends on their day off. All of a sudden, Berter was pulled underwater. He started coming up for air, and then he was dragged back under, letting out screams for help in between. And when he came up for air the last time, he screamed to his friends, A shark bit me. Bit my legs off. Beachgoers and his friends were screaming for the lifeguards to come and help, or anyone for that matter. But when the two lifeguards pulled him onto their boat, his legs were both severed below the knee. And then, Berter died, right there, on the boat. Berter was only 17 years old. He was actually from Switzerland and moved to America when he got the job at the hotel. He was apparently a very strong swimmer, so he was about 100 yards out when the attack occurred. The newspaper article tells the more detailed story from the captain that pulled him aboard his boat. The water around him was explained as a deep crimson, and they said he was only pulled under twice. But the article goes on to talk about how businesses in the area started to get worried about how these deaths would affect their travelers. So patrols began around 100 yards out. They believed that the loud exhaust noises from the boats would scare off the murderous monsters. But when the autopsy was performed by John Treadwell Nicholas, the assistant curator of the Department of Recent Fishes at the American Museum of Natural History, he claimed a shark could not have done this. Nicholas was a very well-respected ichthyologist, which is a fish scientist. So when he said an orca had been responsible for the death of Birder, Scientists were able to maintain their belief that sharks could not kill humans. The really interesting thing is that at the end of the article, it says that 25 years prior, a millionaire athlete named Herman Ulrichs offered $500 to anyone who could prove to him that a bather had actually been attacked by a shark. However, the reward was never claimed. But Ulrichs didn't just stop at the reward. In 1891, he made a bet of $500, which is $12,000 today, that he could get in the water with a shark and it wouldn't attack him. So he jumped in the water with a shark to settle the bet. His guests screamed in terror. Some even started to come to the rescue until they saw the shark quickly swim away. So this just emphasizes how insane these two attacks were. Biologists really thought of these two attacks as flukes. What is crazy is that a local fishing captain named Thomas Cottrell went into the local police claiming to have seen a giant shark near the shore. Cottrell was on top of the town bridge when he saw the menacing shark glide under the bridge. The police didn't believe him, so he took to the streets, warning the townspeople that the shark was on the move. Apparently, he just missed crossing paths with the next victim. And this is when things get worse. July 12th, 1916. A group of young boys were celebrating their day off. They all worked at a basket factory in town, and since it was a hot summer day, they decided to go for a swim. They went to the Matawan Creek, which is about 30 miles north of Spring Lake, where the last attack occurred. One of the boys, named Lester Stilwell, was 11 years old and was in the water and looked to his friends and said, hey fellas, watch me float. When they all looked, they said they saw a dark mass move towards him, and then Stillwell screamed, and the water around him turned crimson. 
His friends knew exactly what was happening, and they ran through the town screaming about the attack. A crowd came and gathered around, trying to see where Stilwell went. He wasn't on the surface anymore, and everyone assumed the worst. Some young men started swimming cautiously in the water to try to find the boy. A 24-year-old man named Stanley Fisher was braver than the rest. He dove deeper than the rest. Stilwell's parents had gotten to the creek at this point and were praying someone would find their boy. Then, Fisher surfaced. Some say they didn't see anything in his arms. Others say they saw the shredded body of Stilwell. But, as he made his way ashore, everyone saw Fisher slam against the ground. And then, they saw the massive shark pull him down, spin him around, and chew great chunks of flesh. Fisher fought back, but the shark did not seem to mind. It wasn't until a boat with rescuers beat it with an oar, and then that the shark let go and disappeared. When they pulled Fisher's body out of the water, his right thigh was torn to shreds. When he got to a doctor, they estimated 10 pounds of flesh had been torn away. Apparently, it was just bone. Stillwell's body was recovered, and the family was able to have a funeral for their young son, but the town was more than shocked. This beast had left the ocean and ventured into a creek where people thought they were safe. What is interesting is that in the article from this attack, they called the shark a sea wolf. Also, when the first attacks happened, experts tried to claim an orca did it, or another sea creature. They even went as far to say it was more likely a giant turtle. I mean, creeks, even though attached to the ocean, are freshwater or brackish, meaning slightly salty, because of the mixture between the water types. So people started to think that this murderous shark was something different, something unknown. Fisher was rushed to a hospital, but sadly did not survive the attack. Two hours after, he had lost too much blood. The crazy thing is that before he passed away, the shark attacked another young boy. Joseph Dunn was only 12 years old when he was attacked by the beast. Dunn, a friend, and his brother were all visiting from New York City and were swimming downstream in the same creek the last attacks occurred in. Dunn was only a few feet out when he felt a rough raking along his leg and then a vicious grip on it. His brother and friend got a hold of him and an epic tug of war began. Thankfully, the creature released and Dunn survived the attack with a torn up leg. This day was the final straw. Not only is all of New Jersey freaking out, but now the nation is. The entire eastern seaboard became terrified this creature would be coming to their beaches next. Then the offerings of rewards started to appear in newspapers. The shark manhunt began. According to the Washington Post, Beachtown mayors had their waters encircled with fences and nettings. Lifeguards were given shotguns and harpoons and long lines baited with dead lambs. Even the president of the United States got involved. Woodrow Wilson, who was the former New Jersey governor, called an emergency meeting of his presidential cabinet and sent out the Coast Guard to fish for the monsters. But New Jerseyans decided to take matters into their own hands, as per usual. Locals of Matawan went to the creek and threw dynamite sticks into the water, blasting anything in there. I mean, they literally tore this creek apart. They were mad and they were scared. They needed to catch the monster that did this. But it wasn't even that. They wanted every shark nearby dead. So they hunted. 
Many sharks were caught and killed during the days after the attacks. Where New Jersey says that hundreds of sharks were caught and slaughtered. But the hunt, although intense, didn't last very long. A local fisherman and taxidermist named Michael Slicer was fishing outside of the creek at the Raritan Bay when something started to attack his boat. He was able to kill the shark and brought it in. The body was taken to Dr. Frederick Lucas, who was the director of the American National History Museum at the time. He determined that the shark they brought in was an eight and a half foot juvenile great white. The interesting thing is that when it was dissected, he found 15 pounds of various human remains in its stomach. So it was believed that the Matawan man-eater was finally dead. And for a lot of people, this signified the end of the summer's nightmare. However, it did take weeks before everyone went back to normal. But also, once 1917 came and World War I had begun, sharks were the least of anyone's worries. This event went on to be known as the 12 Days of Terror. Okay, so you're probably saying, so it was a shark and sharks aren't cryptid, so why are you covering this, Josh? And what I have to say is, everybody shut up. It's my favorite Cassie quote. No, but seriously, there is a cryptid within this story. It is the man-eating shark, a shark that specifically hunts humans, because even to this day, scientists don't believe shark attacks are aimed at the person specifically because they are human. It is usually a case of misidentification or curiosity. For example, the same way we take a bite of food to see what it tastes like, a lot of the shark bites are just this, but for sharks. They swim up to something that might be food, take a nibble, and decide it isn't food, and then leave. So, to give you a little outline of what's coming up, next, we are going to talk about the possibility that there is more than one murderous shark. Then we will talk about another cryptid that may play a part in the man-eating shark fear. So, like I said, once they found this teenage great white, they thought they had solved the mystery. But then news stories started being published that made some people think they could have been wrong. Two of the attacks happened in the ocean, which is saltwater, right? And then three of the attacks happened in the tiny Matawan Creek, which is brackish. Here's a little bit of information that wasn't really talked about. This white shark was found about four miles away from the mouth of the creek, meaning there wasn't any proof of this shark being there. Not to mention the fact that white sharks don't survive in fresh water. But there is a species that can. The bull sharks are considered to be the most dangerous species for humans. They are much smaller than white sharks and usually hunt along coastlines. The other thing is they have the ability to go from saltwater to freshwater, no problem. For example, this species has been spotted 700 miles away from the ocean up the Mississippi River around Alton, Illinois. That is crazy. About 60 years after the 12 Days of Terror, a man named Richard Ellis wrote a book that really questioned the identity of the Matawan man-eater. 1976. Ellis's book, Book of Sharks, comes out. He points out some facts that change the story completely. He starts by offering up his new idea of what really happened. The first two attacks were in the ocean, 70 and 25 miles away from the Matawan Creek. He says, to assume these distant attacks were perpetrated by the same shark that attacked three swimmers in Matawan Creek is stretching the rogue shark theory beyond reasonable limits. He also points out that the white sharks at the time were pretty rare for New Jersey waters. 
Furthermore, white sharks are not known to enter brackish or even freshwater. It's believed that they cannot survive there, but like we've talked about, bull sharks can. Plus, they are known to live in the waters of New Jersey beaches. Ellis says that two days after the creek attacks, a New York Times reporter wrote that the Matawan Creek was alive with sharks yesterday, according to the score of men who went out to hunt them with rifles, shotguns, boat hooks, harpoons, pikes, and dynamite. What he is suggesting is that there was more than one shark involved in these attacks. Then, just a day later, the New York Times reported that a giant shark plunged through the chicken wire net that penned it in at Amatawan Creek and escaped into the ocean last night. Could this have been the real Matawan man-eater? The most damning evidence comes six days after the attacks. A 7-foot, 230-pound shark was caught in Matawan Creek. In his book, Ellis says that this is a reasonable length-weight ratio for carcarinidin shark, such as the bull shark, taking this as evidence that a shark occurred in the creek. So, maybe the two ocean attacks were perpetrated by a different shark than the creek attacks. Either way, the man-eating had ended, so no one asked any more questions. And maybe that is for the best. Or... Maybe the man-eater just moved on to other beaches to stalk and attack other people. Now, there is a species of shark that, if still alive today, could really be a murderous shark. The Megalodon. This giant shark was believed to have gone extinct about 3.6 million years ago. Not only was it the biggest shark in the world, it is believed to be one of the largest fish to ever exist. Archaeologists believed it could be anywhere between 50 to 60 feet in length, which is three times larger than the largest recorded great white shark. Here's the fascinating part. There has never been a complete skeleton found of the megalodon. Archaeologists have had to estimate its length based on the teeth they have found. These massive teeth can reach around 18 centimeters long, which is about 7 inches, whereas the white shark's teeth are usually less than 3 inches. There's more information about this creature that experts have been able to put together. It definitely was a carnivore and an apex predator. They have found whale fossils with a megalodon tooth still stuck in it. With this info, experts have estimated that the beast's jaws could have opened about 8 to 10 feet wide. Scientists have even gone on record to say that it may have been one of the most powerful predators ever to have existed. What they do know is that the white shark and the megalodon are not related. In fact, whereas the white shark lives in cold waters, they believe megalodons lived in tropical warm waters. Teeth have been found off the coast of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida from the U.S., and Morocco, and parts of Australia from around the world. In an article from the Natural History Museum, Emma Bernard, a curator of the museum's fossil fish and shark collection, says that megalodon are definitely extinct. She said, no, it's definitely not alive in the deep oceans, despite what the Discovery Channel has said in the past. If an animal as big as megalodon still lived in the oceans, we would know about it. So, since she mentioned Discovery Channel, I had to see what she meant. On YouTube, you can find a video that Discovery Channel has on their page, and it shows evidence they believe proved the megalodon hasn't gone extinct. Now, the video is less than three minutes long, so it's worth a watch, but I personally think there are two pieces of evidence that are particularly interesting. The first one is a photo. It is apparently from Cape Town, South Africa. It was taken on December 18th in 1942. 
It shows two military submarines emerging out of the water, and in the background, there is what looks like a dorsal fin and the tip of a tail from a giant shark-like creature. According to Discovery, it is about 64 feet long. Now, I couldn't find a story surrounding the picture, and trust me, I searched. Went to some sketchy websites and probably have a virus on my laptop now, so you're welcome. <laughs> but what is known is that Cape Town is where cold and warm water meet. Basically, from the east of Africa comes the warmer water, and from the west comes the colder. So, since we know megalodons like warm waters, this would make sense. The other piece of evidence that caught my eye was a video captured along the Brazilian coastline on November 20th, 2012. The video is from the Brazilian Coast Guard during a rescue mission. It is shot from a camera attached to the helicopter. You can see one person hanging out of the plane assisting the rescue and then another Coast Guard member in the water with some other flotation devices. But in the right-hand corner of the video, something massive swims by. Discovery enhanced the video to get a better look and... When they did, you can see a massive shark-like creature in the water, estimated to be around 60 feet in length. So I thought it could have been a whale, until you see the tail. It is moving in a back-and-forth motion, like a shark, rather than up and down like a whale. Now, there is another video and another picture, but I, I thought these two were the more compelling pieces of evidence. It is totally possible that Discovery released this for the media attention or publicity, but until someone says that, we can assume these are real pieces of evidence. Sightings of these monsters have been told by fisher people all around the world for centuries. But there's one sighting that was only two years after the Matawan man-eater attacks, which would give plenty of time for a beast to swim from the New Jersey shores to the oceans off the coast of Australia. 1918. David Steed, an Australian naturalist, wrote about a strange time when local fisher people refused to go back out to sea. He said that people had spotted an unbelievably massive shark that had demolished their gear and taken their catch. These people are very experienced fishers. They have seen all types of whales and even large sharks, but what they were describing was much different than anything they knew. It scared them so much that they refused to work. The creature they saw was described as somewhere between 35 to 90 meters long, which is about 115 feet to 290 feet. They also described it as pure white in color. Like we've said, no one knows what color the megalodon was, so maybe these people really did see a giant beast that survived past extinction. So, now to finish off this episode. Let's talk about the whole man-eating shark aspect. Again, like I said, scientists think that sharks do not intentionally hunt humans. According to the National Ocean Services, most sharks are not dangerous to humans. The article goes on to say that since sharks evolved millions of years before humans existed, humans are not part of their normal diets. Sharks are opportunistic feeders, but most sharks primarily feed on smaller fish and invertebrates. Some of the larger shark species prey on seals, sea lions, and other marine mammals. Obviously, we know that sharks have attacked humans, but again, it is usually a case of misidentification. The article even says if a shark sees a human splashing in the water, it might try to investigate, leading to an accidental attack. There are massive sharks in the oceans for sure, but no one has found any proof that they are hunting humans. 
The Madawan man-eater really opened the nation's eyes to how important it is to remember that when swimming in the ocean, you are in the territory of other animals. When Peter Benchley wrote Jaws, it awakened a new fear in people. Although the New Jersey tax were not the initial inspiration, they had a big hand in how it was written. Benchley has said he does regret writing the book because he didn't know much about sharks at the time. He modeled it based on the behavior in the 1916 attacks, since the shark or sharks were behaving in an atypical way. But either way, like I've said many times before, the ocean is less than 20% explored, meaning there is hope for all those monsters out there in the oceans, including Megalodon. So, what do you think? Is the Matawan man-eater or Megalodon really out there? We are on Instagram, at OutThereCryptids, so make sure to follow us and tell us all of your thoughts on the cryptids we cover and what you'd like to hear next. It would mean a lot to us if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. One week from today, I will be covering a cryptid that has been seen many times since as early as 1887, the Dogman of Michigan. See you next week. This episode was written and hosted by me, Josh, with logo design by Jason Zykes and theme music from purpleplanet.com.